This new railroad, uh, I moved out to Nebraska about four years ago. Um, I hopped on board with another railroad and uh, low man on the seniority pole. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's just where I ended up on second shift. Uh, I actually prefer working nights. It just works better with my internal schedule. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't leave a lot of time for uh, uh, much of a social life or doing other things I would like to do. But, mm -hmm. uh, but that's just, uh, that's just the way it goes. But, uh, in my earlier years, my twenties, I worked, uh, I worked, uh, second shift and third shift all the time. Yeah. Um, and that just always, that just always seemed to work best for my schedule. Um, not that I hate working day shift, but, uh, you know, just, it's just about, it's just how, um, just how the body adapts. And I, I, I work better at night for some you, reason. I'm just one of those like, weirdo people. Yeah. Do you feel like you always have like been better for working at night? Like your brain wakes up at night or is that something like a learned behavior that you've picked up over time? No, I've always thought, uh, I've always been a night, more of a night owl. I, I had that problem in high school, yeah. um, 11 o'clock at night and I'm, I'm bouncing off the walls because uh, there's all this stuff I want to do. I want to, you know, I wanted to practice. I wanted to watch TV shows. And, yeah, man. No, <laughs> plus I, I got my parents yelling at me. It's like you need to go. Yeah, to, you got to yeah. be at school in a couple hours. You need to get to bed. And it's like, I couldn't. And of course, you know, six o'clock in the morning rolls around. I got to wake up and go uh, get on the bus, go to school, and then through the whole day, I'm just half asleep. I I am so. totally with you, dude. It's 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 a weird thing that like. I can't help but think like now all of my best ideas, all of the most efficient work that I've ever done has been when I'm working on a project between the hours of 10 p.m. and about 3.30 a.m. That's like my golden area. Like that's when all the best things happen for my brain. Right. Yeah. No, I, uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, especially, and this is what drives my family, every girlfriend, wife I've ever had. Um, two o'clock in the morning, I want to pull out my practice chanter. <laughs> it, it, it exacerbates the problem when you're a bagpiper, doesn't uh, it? <laughs> there, are, there, are, there have been times when I've actually had to like leave the house and go sit in my car <laughs> with my practice chanter because my brain was just, you know, everything was firing. All cylinders are firing. Yeah. I'm ready to go and I'm ready to learn something or try something out. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I dig it, man. That's that's rough. Well, do, do you, is your work with the railroad such that you can take a chanter with you and and you know take a break here and there and play a tune? Uh, the last railroad, yes. This railroad, no. Um, this railroad's a little bit more strict, and the area that I work in now is it's more of like a production facility. Oh, gotcha. And so there's not a lot of downtime. The last railroad I worked for, I was uh, I ran the machine shop and mm. I did more repair work. So there was a lot of downtime. I would just wait for something to break or wait for somebody to bring me something. So I had moments where I could look over a piece of music or yeah. I could take my practice chanter off into a quiet corner and do something. But this railroad I'm at now, um, <clears throat> things roll in all the time. I don't have, you, uh, I don't have any, I don't have any free moments. You know that, of course, as soon as I hear you talking about working for a railroad, my, I immediately figure that you must just like wear overalls smoke a cob pipe and stand at the front of an engine you know just just billowing <laughs> steam back and forth across the country that must be what you do right red handkerchief no. around the neck and everything <laughs> no no uh i wear jeans and a t-shirt um i actually work for uh the section of the railroad i work for now i am uh i inspect the axles and wheel sets underneath freight cars oh gotcha and then when these freight cars come in for repair they pull the wheel sets out from underneath them bring them into my area and i inspect them to make sure either they're good enough to be returned to service or they need repair work or they need to go to the scrapyard man does that does that does the weight of that responsibility ever ever get heavy <clears throat> on your mind i mean you know anybody in like quality and safety work you, of course you can get numb to it eventually or you can get so good at it that you're comfortable but like you ever think to yourself, like, no, I don't want a derailment on my on my conscience, you know? No, and that, that's that's a very for real thing. Yeah. Um, the last railroad I worked for, I was in the the sector that that laid rail. Mm. We uh, we did track maintenance and we laid new track. Uh, it's kind of the same thing with this railroad. I mean, that's where it all. That's the foundation of it all. Mm -hmm. And if something goes wrong and they can trace it back to you. Um, you could be in a lot of trouble. You could be fine. You can go to prison. It's no different than a lot of the airline mechanics, the mm -hmm. same standards mm -hmm. that they're under. They have a big responsibility. Yeah. Um, did so. you did you get started working doing railroad work in Utah? No, I started in uh, Colorado. In Colorado, huh? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
I, I, I guess, see, my, my awareness of, of railroads is so limited. It's like I know where, where I had to wait for a train to get to my girlfriend's house when we were kids, <laughs> you know. And, like, I know, I know that the Golden Spike is up in northern Utah. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, mm-hmm. you know, that's about as far. I used to carry a pocket watch. That always made me feel kind of like an engineer somehow. <laughs> so that's about <laughs> as far as it goes for me, you know. So I'm pretty ignorant of the whole industry. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting industry. I've been in it for 24 years now. Um, you know, I got seven more to go until I can retire. Uh, hope I make it knock on wood. Hope the whole industry doesn't cave in on itself, but, uh, it, it's an interesting industry. Um, you think it's just a bit, bunch of big mechanical stuff, just barreling down the track, right? There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, the derailment that happened in Ohio is yeah. a perfect example of one little thing goes wrong and you have a major catastrophe on your hands. Yeah. Um, and it's not just one person at fault. Anybody who had anything to do with that situation is going to get hauled in front of an investigation board. Mm-hmm. And they're going to ask hard questions and yeah. jobs might be lost. Um, <laughs> And prison sentences might be handed out. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a very for real it's a very for real thing. But yeah. I do like it. I do like it. So do, do you feel like you've become a like a real connoisseur of um, of freight car side graffiti art? Like like you've seen some really great <laughs> stuff. Like you can tell like now that took skill. You know. <laughs> I've actually seen videos. They've uh, we we uh, we get these reports from every. Railroad has their own little police department, right? Uh, and we have surveillance cameras all over rail yards. Mm. It's pretty amazing to watch these guys come out to a rail yard mm. and might be just two, maybe three guys mm. with a spray can in each hand. And in a matter of five minutes, they could have an entire side of a freight car painted up. Man. It's you, amazing you got, to watch you, these guys work. And you think, man, where are they you rehearsing just these guys for that? A, a blank canvas somewhere in the city and say, hey, make this beautiful. You yeah. know, they could make a fortune. But no, they want to break into a rail yard and spray paint. But it's amazing to watch these guys, how fast they work, how fast they can do it. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. This isn't in like an hours long project. I mean, they, they get out there in like five minutes. They can have a whole side of a rail car just that's pretty cool yeah and i have seen some pretty amazing artwork yes i have yeah but uh they bring it to my facility in havelock nebraska and it goes into the sandblasting pit and Uh, they take it all they take it all off yeah (laughs) and then they repaint the car sometimes that's probably not too big deal but i gotta imagine that sometimes it's like dang too bad because that was cool (laughs) yeah no 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 for real and i wish i could take pictures but of course you know we have regulations against that yeah but yeah i I have seen some pretty good artwork come through Mm -hmm. i'll admit so, so then maybe take me back a little bit, Scott. I want to hear a little bit of like kind of your bio- biography. Did did, uh, did you grow up there in Colorado? Where did you grow up? Tell me about. I Colorado. actually, I was born in Germany. Whoa, hey, whoa! That's not at all what I was expecting. <laughs> How long did you <laughs> yeah. live there? I lived there until I was nine years old. Wow, and, really? And then we uh, we moved to Colorado, and that's where I did the majority of my growing up. Mm. Um, so, so did you ever live in Utah? I did not live in Utah. I tried several times. I dug, um, with, I, that's the thing. I, I dug you up because I was using the Utah area bagpipers Facebook page. But, of course, that's not just people in Utah. So, Right. Um, no, I tried. Yeah, when I got on board with the first railroad back in Colorado, um, they had openings in Utah, and I was always trying to get out to Utah. Mm-hmm. And then with this, uh, with this move to this new railroad, I was going to just do my time out here, and then I was eventually planning on getting – Getting to Utah, I was going to mm-hmm. transfer it to something. Then COVID hit, and that shut that whole thing down. Um, and we're still trying to get sorted after all that whole catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I've never lived in Utah. Been to Utah several times. When I was in the Wasatch Band, and I was out there every month. Yeah, I see. Um, you traveled. Yeah, that's a, that's the thing. I've yeah. seen you on Facebook in Wasatch Kilts, and so I was just assuming you'd been living up there. Yeah, um, sometimes twice a month, depending on what was going on. Either they you know, come out for the games, or they had a workshop. Or uh, yeah. I did have a lot of friends out in Utah at one point. Um, so yeah, I did spend a lot of time in Utah. I really liked Utah. Um, it was kind of like, especially Salt Lake City area, because it mm-hmm. was like like Denver, but not as crowded. Yeah, totally. I can totally <laughs> right? see that. Yeah, it's like Denver. And but it was still totally. still the mountains. You know, I, I still I miss the mountain air. I really do miss the mountain air. Yeah. Because um, everything down here is just wet all the time. It's just, yeah. I'm not used to I'm not used to humidity, so it's just it kind of gets on my nerves sometimes. Yeah. But I do miss I do miss that dry mountain air. I do miss the scenery. Um, mm. I don't know if you've ever been out this way in this part of the Midwest. It's flat and it's it's pretty boring to look at. Yeah. My my dad grew up in South Dakota, 
We'd go out oh, there, there go. every yeah. summer when I was a kid, we were out there. And yeah, not only flat, but also humidity. Both things were things that I was not used to, and I did not. <laughs> I think I was like four or five years old, my parents tell me I got out of the car at my grandma's house, and you know, right in the middle of probably June or July there in Sioux Falls, oh, and, I just, yeah. and I just went, the air here is bad, and I got back in the car. <laughs> the only benefit, uh, bagpipes sound amazing out here. Yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Get a little yeah, closer to sea um, level and a little more humidity. That's oh yeah, uh, big, big, big sound. Um, and that was that was kind of a shocker. Last year, I went to the Chicago Highland Games. That was the first time I went to that games. Yeah. But even the Grade Five bands have mm. big sound. And I think that humidity and lower elevation really do make a difference. You yeah. get into the uh, the mountain states, the uh, drier air and the higher elevation uh, that thins out. It thins pipes things out. That's exactly yeah. the word I would use. Yeah, thins out. It even thins out the uh, the midsection drums. I noticed that too. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And in the Chicago contest, the midsection drums really stand out. Mm. Even with the smaller chords, you could really actually hear all the pitches in the different tenor drums. It's amazing. Yeah, um, it is funny how hard that can be to pick out here locally. Yeah. Uh, now, but you go to a, like the SS Park games. I don't know if you've ever done the SS yeah, Park SS games Park, in Colorado. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it just uh, the sound just disappears up there. Not just for pipes, but for drums too. It's just it's yeah. just it's. It's a beautiful place to be. It's a great place to visit. It's not a great place to play, <laughs> right? So, so were you? Did you? Were you born in Germany because your parents are military, or was there? Were they German citizens themselves, or how, how did that happen? <laughs> so, my dad was in the military. He gotcha. was in the army. Yeah. Um, and my mom, born in Scotland, she was oh, actually she? working as a nanny in Germany because she was trying to immigrate to Australia. She was trying to save up money. Yeah. And they met in a Munich beer hall during Oktoberfest. That's then, the most German thing they could possibly have done. <laughs> and then two years later, they, uh, you know, I came into the world. So there that. you go. Did your mom ever make it to Australia? You guys move around a bit before she, coming here? Or? Uh, she did not. No, um, actually, uh, we stayed in Germany for a lot of years, and then we moved to Colorado. That was it. That was the move, huh? That was the move. Yeah. Well, was... what do you have, like, do you have clear memories of germany do you ever oh like, oh yeah you, do you oh, go yeah. to every oktoberfest yeah. you can and just think ah finally some good bratwurst or you know or... uh sometimes uh you know denver always had a big one i'd go there but yeah. then yeah, there was always those moments where you'd hear the music and you taste the food and it just it brings you back to a time uh, you know, my adjustment to coming to america was actually pretty difficult because was it yeah you know, i had a european mother and i was born in and born and raised in a european country yeah Things are different over there. And then I yeah. came to America, uh, you know, a little bit of culture shock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there were times when I was a kid, I was just like, you know, you know crying to my parents. I was like, when are we going back to Germany? And, of course, mm. they're like, well, we're not, you know. Mm. Um, but, yeah, um, being born and raised in a, in a different part of the world, then you come to America or things are different. And, of course, you know, America is my home. I, you know, I'm not going to like a debate that or anything but yeah. uh it was a culture shock especially for you know a nine-year-old kid you yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know what's going on you know we jump on a plane next thing you know i'm in a foreign land and <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. everybody's talking weird you know you just get used to hearing german in the background all the time right oh of course just, yeah yeah that's and you know I, I was never fluent in german but i i knew enough of the language i could hear it i could know what people were saying yeah. i could vaguely read road signs and things like that and, and then all of a sudden you know you don't have that anymore yeah um, yeah, yeah. So, I've I've heard that like even like babies who are adopted into a country where a different language is spoken, even if they weren't old enough to speak a country yet, a part of what can be difficult for them, uh, part of why maybe they cry so much and stuff like that, right, is that the background sound is different. Just the sounds are different, you know. Even if they didn't, right. even if they couldn't have spoken themselves, you get used to hearing uh, mm. the language that you're hearing. Yeah, um, and then customs are different too. Like I said, yeah. I, I was old enough there that I you, know, you pick up on local customs. Uh, you know, and I bring this up as an example. Um, and so in Germany, if two people are walking down the sidewalk and they pass each other, if you don't know that other person and you have no reason to talk to them, you don't. You just look ahead and just keep on walking. Yeah. <laughs> you don't look over there and smile and say good morning. Or that doesn't happen. Right. Right. So that was the environment I grew up in. 
And then all of a sudden, a nine-year-old kid, you come to America, and then I walk past somebody, and they're smiling at me, and I'm just like, what? What's going on here? Smiling at you and saying, "Hello, how are you today?" <laughs> yeah, and people are trying to talk to me, and I'm like, hey, yeah. "Get away from me, you molester! <laughs> what, are you, what are you trying to do here?" Um, it was little things like that. It, it just it took me it took me several years to actually you know get reprogrammed. It, it's funny, dude. I have a I have a really close friend who moved up here to the states from Mexico. Um, oh, it's probably it's actually been like seven eight years now that he's been living up here. But we went to dinner uh, after he'd been here for a couple years, and I was just talking with him about like, yeah, you know, what are you getting used to? What's what's weird? What do you miss about home? That kind of stuff. And he was like, man, Americans are just like so cold, you know, like they won't talk to you, they won't look at you. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, you know, there's there's just your your example of like what you're coming from is what you're used to, you know. And I and I tried right. to tell him, I was like, if you went to some of these Western and Northern European countries. They, they would say exactly the opposite. Like, Americans would say that those people are the ones who are cold and won't talk to you and such. And if they were to come here, they'd say Americans are way too, like, in your face and friendly and ready to speak, you know. And, and you know, so then Mexico goes even further along that spectrum, I, I guess, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I would agree with that, yeah. Well, um, did – so your mom was from Scotland. Was that part of why bagpipes came into your life? <laughs> oh, this is oh, this is a funny story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or did she fight bagpipes coming into your life? <laughs> no, she she didn't. Yeah, my grandfather would send her records every once in a while of uh, you know Scottish music. Um, oh yeah, and it was different uh, Kaylee band kind of stuff. Uh, some Scottish country dance music, and a couple of the records they sent over had bagpipe bands. Mm-hmm. And I remember I heard it. I was like, man, that's amazing. That's interesting. But of course, in Colorado Springs, that's where I grew up. Um, this is in the days before the internet and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mom thought she was the only Scottish person in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, we didn't know there was anything else out there. But I always said, man, that's an interesting instrument. I learned how to play that. Well, it, it, that happened as a kid. Yeah. But here's the other half of the story. So I've always been like a different child. And uh, when everybody was jumping on a bandwagon and doing this thing over here, I was over off doing something else, you know, because mm-hmm. I didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. So when all the uh, when all of us kids in elementary school started, you know, the school band stuff started up, and I had a friend who wanted to play trumpet, I had another friend who wanted to play saxophone. Right. I decided I was going to play accordion. You know? <laughs> so there's yeah. your there's your German your your, your German and, uh, uh, experience coming out there, huh? Possibly, but then also just because I didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. All these kids want to join school band and play school instruments. So I was like, I'm going to do this cool thing over here. Go be a band unto yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, nobody else thought accordion was cool, but me. Yeah. But um, but I've always been that kind of person. I've just never you know, followed a crowd or gone with the flow. You know, just, everybody's over here doing their thing, and I'm just, uh, everybody else is doing it. So let's, I'm going to go find something new. Go. Yeah. So I got to my teenage years, and that's when um, my parents, um, my grandparents actually had come over that summer, brought me my first kilt from Scotland, and then we went to the Colorado Renaissance Festival. Uh-huh. And at the Colorado Renaissance Festival, they had what they called the Celtic Weekend. And that was the first time I had heard bagpipes in person because they had the, they had a whole band there. Mm. It was the St. Andrews Pipes and Drums Band from Denver, and that was the first time I'd heard bagpipes, a uh, pipe band live in person. And I was just, I was just, I was in the front row and I was just amazed. It was like it was just loud and <laughs> bombastic and yeah. it's just overpowering. And I just I fell in love with it. Yeah. But the thing I think sealed the deal was um, during the pipe band performance they had the dancers come out oh yeah and i remember this one dancer caught my eye she had the most graceful walk when she came out to the stage and and uh you know i watched her dance probably three times and i fell in love all right i yeah. thought okay that was it that was that was that was gonna seal the deal and i decided i was gonna learn how to play the bagpipes i was gonna meet that girl we're gonna fall in love get married yada 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 that's gonna be a perfect perfect storybook story <laughs> absolutely <laughs> And it didn't happen. So, <laughs> what? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I fell in love, but she wasn't having it. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but that's just the way it goes. But you know, I stuck with it because, like I said, I was just always. Um, you know, at that point in my life, I was really into my culture. Yeah. And that was something I think that would. Uh, it was different coming to America, is kids didn't have a sense of their culture, their identity, or where they came from. They and a lot of them just didn't care. But. Yeah, I did. It's such a I, it's such a young place, isn't it? Com- yeah. Coming from somewhere like Germany, like there's there's a pretty big difference in terms of like the history of the current culture on this piece right. of land. 
because uh, um, yeah, everybody in America says oh, I'm an American first, and you know wherever their cultural lineage is, that comes later down the mm -hmm, road. Mm -hmm. um, but I always had a, an attachment to my own culture. I wanted to know where I came from. You know, I thought I came from a pretty cool place. It had a pretty cool history, and it had this really cool instrument that you know nobody else plays. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's how I got drawn in. Like I said, I was just I always wanted to do something different, and yeah. uh, it was just part of uh, who my uh, who I was, who I am. So were you when you when you got started playing? I mean, did you find a local teacher, and did you get right in with a band, or were you running around solo for a while? Yeah, I was actually. Uh, there was a new band that just had formed up. Um, and it was just four pipers. It was three pipers and then me, the uh, the young kid beginner who didn't know what the hell he was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and we started the Pikes Peak Highlanders, and that was the uh, first band in Colorado Springs. Mm. And that was, uh, it grew, you know, it grew. We uh, added a couple pipers and a couple drummers. And uh, uh, looking back on it, it was basically just a collection of people that weren't wearing any of the same uniform items, weren't even playing the same chanters, not even the same drums. I mean, we just we had a mismatch of all kinds of drums. Yeah. Uh, it was just kind of a gaggle of people that just kind of wandered down the street together. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, um, but I stuck with that band, and I helped bring that band up to the top of grade four at that time. That's um, not nothing to go from, from to go from yeah. zero to top of grade four, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, my uh, my principal teacher was Gordon Spears. When he moved out to Colorado, he uh, I, I started taking lessons from him. And Gordon was always pushing me to go more of the solo route. And I couldn't, I, I, I really did not like doing solos. Not I really. really I, I don't mind listening to a good soloist, but I hated doing solo competition. Mm. I couldn't stand it. It drove me up the wall. I was always more focused on, on the band. Yeah. I always, I just, for some reason, I've always gravitated more towards band playing and, you know, getting a group of people together, getting them on the same page and producing good music. That's what I've always wanted but to do. That's there is a kind of magic there. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. People talk about the differences. What's harder, bandpiping, solo piping? I honestly think bandpiping, being a bandpiper, is harder than being a soloist. Mm -hmm. I really do. Um, <clears throat> um, but yeah, much to Gordon's dismay, I, you know, I wasn't interested in becoming the top level soloist that he wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, at that time in Colorado, to be a top level soloist, you basically had to go to California because right, no, not <laughs> didn't really have the money to travel. <laughs> you know, to go to a solo contest. So, so my focus was always banned, and it's always been banned. Yeah. And that's where I'm happiest. And that's where I think I, that's where I operate the best, I think, is in a band setting. Yeah. Did you feel like, did you feel like growing up with a military dad in any way kind of made it very easy to slip right into the sort of like, I mean, pipe bands have a, a sort of military heritage uh, built into them, even the you know the the rank names for leadership and things like that. Did that feel right. really familiar for you? I don't think so. Mm. Um, I, well, I I can't say for sure it yeah. did or it did not. My I think my focus was always um, we're a team. It doesn't matter who's leading, you mm. know. Um, but we're all we're all a team. We're all in this together, and let's let's all you know put egos aside um, and do the very best we can. Yeah. Um, um, don't have to love each other, but we have to work together. Uh, mm. Let's get together and do something. Let's do let's, let's do something cool. Let's do something good. Yeah. And that's always what I wanted to do. And so I think, you know, the rank structure, the discipline, you know, this guy's on top and the rest of us are down below. And no, I don't think that really came into play. My, my thing was just, let's just get a group of people together. We're all doing the same thing. We're all here. Let's just, let's see if we, how, how good can we make this and how far can we take it? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now, when you came over to Colorado initially, well, I'm just thinking, like, um, did your dad stay military, or did he go into rail, railway work, and is that how you got into railway work, or was that something you discovered on your own? Um, or no, my dad My dad did another, I think, seven years after we got to Colorado. He stayed in the military. He, uh, he retired. Mm -hmm. um, and then he got into... Uh, uh, <laughs> he was a... Uh, he got into supply his last... Uh, couple tours in the military oh, so gotcha. that's what he ended up doing later i actually um i went to scotland in 1989 and i visited bob shepherd's shop this was and, a like uh, a recreational right. visitor where you'd stay in there for a while yeah no it was a recreational visit. i went with my gotcha. mom we were on holiday yeah but uh, i got to see bob shepherd's uh backpipe making shop cool. and i got to talk to his son doug 
And of course, I was talking to Doug, and at the time, I had an interest in getting into the machine shop. I always wanted to be a machinist. Yeah. And Doug had said, well, you know, bagpipe making is kind of a cross between woodworking and, and machining. Yeah. Especially totally. when you're doing boards, because a lot of bagpipe makers use gun boring equipment. Yeah. Rifle, uh, rifle, rifling equipment. Yeah. For drone bores. And that's what kind of got me started in the, in the machine shop. Um, and then I, got, I worked several machine shop jobs before I started with the railroad. And, and then I ran uh, the machine shop with Union Pacific Railroad for 15 years in Denver. Did you ever have, when, you were, when you've been working in machine shops, did you ever have access to like really cool CNC's uh, kind of equipment and like just go ahead and make yourself a set of pipes out of some weird material like an aluminum alloy <laughs> set of drones or anything like that? No, um, I actually found CNC machining very boring. Um, <laughs> but doing all the programming, doing right. the programming for CNC machining is actually it takes longer than making the part itself. Right, it's so kind of front, never, front heavy in that way, isn't it? Right. Peter Chrysler and I had many, many long hour conversations about that. Man, how many pieces of plastic he went through mm. to get his bagpipe the way it was, mm. um, and I just didn't have that time for it. So I did when I started. I did a lot of uh, repair work or replacement part work. Uh, I made a lot of channer caps. I probably made a thousand channer caps. Oh um, yeah, because I can make one in like five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, on a manual lathe, it took me no time. Um, a lot of split water traps. Granted, they weren't pretty. Um, you know, they weren't tapered. They weren't beaded or combed. They were just pretty much straight black plastic. But, but functional. Somebody said, "Hey, they wanted oh, a water trap." I, okay, cool. I'll make you one in ten minutes. You know. Do you, do you have a manual lathe at home that, like, do you hobby around on it? No, I don't. Um, pen turning or anything like that? <laughs> uh, I've, I've, been, I've been debating about whether or not I want to do that. I mean, that's a lot of money yeah. um, to get into that. And it's a lot of, uh, that, that equipment, the uh, power consumption is through the roof. Yeah. So it's not just the cost of the equipment. So your electric bill goes pretty high. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been a nice break from the trade so sure, to speak sure, because, yeah. you know I, you know 15 years doing repair machine work at the railroad it burned me out a little bit but mm -hmm. then i get into and miss it but what's funny is that i got into machining because eventually i wanted to start making bagpipes right yeah but yeah. my time in machining i think i did more work on drums and making drum parts than I oh did interesting bagpipe. oh yeah <laughs> a lot of threaded parts on drums you wouldn't yeah. believe it um so uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuck lug nuts that I had, or uh, uh, tuning lugs I had to break free, and uh, mm. a lot of a lot of thread chasing, a lot of a lot of straightening out drum hoops, um, yeah, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think I did more repair work on drums than I did pipes. Basically. Well, do you do you feel like you're burnt out on it, or do you still consider like maybe maybe making bagpipes is a retirement project here in a few years or something? Yeah, we'll see. You know, I uh, I talked to Gibson when he was still alive, and he actually yeah. wanted to hire me. Oh, Problem yeah. was, he only he only wanted to pay me ten bucks an hour and no benefits <laughs> and no retirement. So, yeah, that's that's not, not gonna happen. Not quite the but... same as what Union Pacific could be giving you at the same time. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't a good deal. It wasn't a good deal. As much as I'd like to, wanted to, you know, if I, you know, if I had a trust fund or something. And I could live off of that right, might have yeah. been a good career choice, but uh, no, I, you never know what the future is going to hold. Maybe, maybe I hit the lottery one day and I could set up my own shop. Um, I talked to Ross Morrill a few times. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe I just go work part time at his shop. He yeah, can show me. Go. He's got an interesting setup going on. I mean, he's making a good. He's making some good stuff. His sets are lovely. I love seeing them. Oh every, yeah. Every time he comes up yeah. with something new, you know, it's pretty to look at. Oh yeah, and uh, him, Ross, and I had many discussions about that, about yeah. uh, the way his pipes look. I mean, I just I think they're awesome because each set's different. It's unique. It's got yeah. its own sound. It's got its own look. My problem with a lot of bagpipe makers, they're all just copycats of each other. You know what I mean? Well, once you get that CNC set up, you know, and you can just yeah. shove them through. It, it's a it's a it's a business model. It's not as exciting for the consumer to look at the different sets, though. Of course, it's not because you know the Henderson set, the McCallum set, the Nail set, the Shepherd set. I mean, they all look the same. Yeah, a yeah. slight differences here and there, but it's all pretty much the same design. And after a while, you're just like, eh. yeah. and then you see one of the Ross's sets, you're like, ooh, right? Know. Yeah, lights lights <laughs> everything up. Yeah. Well, that's pretty. Uh, kind of on that note, I'm just curious what, um, let's say money were no object. I gave you a blank check, but you have to use it on bagpipe stuff. What uh, what would be top of your list? Uh, <clears throat> well, I probably, I uh, really like David Neal's pipes. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I probably do that, but I, I don't like the plastic mounts. So I probably mm. do another exotic hardwood mount. Um, and I probably do a, a brass lined, at least the bottom sections would be brass lined. Mm. Uh, Cause I think that adds a, a, a really nice brightness to mm. the drone sound. Um, so yeah, and then you know, of course I would probably have Ross uh, make me a custom set. I really, really love Brazilian kingwood. Yes, that's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful wood. Sounds really nice. Unfortunately, it's very hard to get. Yeah. So I mean, a blank check is probably what I would need to get <laughs> a set of kingwood pipes. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, that's that's probably what I would do. Um, I'm not big on the silver. The full silver stuff, you know? right? Yeah. So um, you wouldn't be getting crazy about like a whole lot of fancy silver with engravings on it and all that no, kind of stuff. No, no, yeah. I don't. Um, uh, I played a couple of uh, those DN6 needles, you know, yeah. the full silver. Man, that's a heavy set of pipes. Yeah. I'd bet. I've never held one myself, but that makes sense. Oh, I'm sure it would man, be. <laughs> I, that would that wears out your arm, believe it or not. I yeah. just, you know, I mean, if you're a guy that can play two or three hours a day, you can probably build up that endurance. That's fine. But the rest of us, you know, maybe that's your sit down uh, set, not your parade uh, set, huh? Well, definitely. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, those are those are very very heavy sets. But and, you know, uh, we all know. I mean, it's just trim. It's just it's just bling. Course, it doesn't really so, add yeah. anything to the sound. And that's why I talked to Ross about it. if I ever ever get have him make me a set, I wouldn't get it mounted with anything. Yeah. Not even stainless ferrules. I wouldn't. Do, I wouldn't do ferrules. I wouldn't. None of that stuff. You know. Just, just wood, when it, wood just, all just over. Yeah. yeah. Just plain wood. Just yeah, plain there, wood. There's a real beauty to that. That's that's for sure. Yeah. What what about your current your current instrument setup? Just just for sake of nerding out, you know, like what uh what kind of uh, drones, reeds, chanters do you play? So I've got David Neal's and with the Blackwood projecting mounts, which uh -huh. was one of the first two sets that landed in America. And That's I knew a guy cool. who was working at Henderson's at the time, and he called me up. And he says, "Hey, you wouldn't believe what I got." <laughs> and so yeah, I snagged up the second set that. It came to America. That's awesome. Um, with the Henderson Harm Deluxe Harmonics or Harmonic Deluxe, whatever the carbon fiber tongue right, drone yeah. reeds, which my all-time favorite drone read. I think mm -hmm. that's the best drone read on the market. Do you have? Yeah. Do those, does those have carbon fiber tongues on the tenors as well, or just on the bass? Yes, gotcha. mine does. Yes, all of them. Yeah. Uh, yep. And then the band Channer I'm playing right now is the G1 with the G1 Platinum Reed. Taking notes. I'm taking notes on this as if I were a spy finding out what Wasatch <laughs> District is using. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know what was secret. <laughs> I don't know what Wasatch is playing. I'm not actually playing with Wasatch right now. I'm oh, that's the right. Long... You, I'm all the way out there. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and then I've got a Strathmore Channer that I dearly love. That I'm, I'm playing. I've, I've never night, played so. one of those. You, you you really like that one, huh? I hear I do. people it's mention them here and there, you know, but it doesn't feel like it's as common as some of the others. You don't come across them as often, you know. It's got a very comfortable feel, but mm. it doesn't have the problem that the Sinclair... The Sinclair channer is a very comfortable channer, too, but yeah. it's got some finicky notes on it, especially low G. Um, mm. I'm not sure how Sinclair became a popular channer as it did, because um, I've talked to some bands that use the Sinclair channer. Like, one low G will be sharp, a couple of them will be flat, you know, mm. you get a couple of weird Fs. Um, but uh, it's a very comfortable channer to play, and the Strathmore is a very comfortable channer plate as well it's not a big taper and it's got more of a narrow um or closer together hole spacing mm, yeah so i mean you're not doing that big stretch that's what i don't like about the nail solo chainer it's got you've got a real really wide stretch on your bottom hand mm. and it's not comfortable for me i don't really have big hands mm. so i've never found that to be a comfortable chainer to play but the strathmore is definitely my favorite solo chainer are you a are you a Highland piper 100% or do you have like some small pipes, shuttle pipes, border pipes, that kind of stuff on the side too? Um, I messed around with the shuttle pipes and I had a set of Gibson Firesides for a while. Oh yeah. Um, I don't have anything like that right now. Yeah. Um, I've tried to play bellows pipes a few times. Um, I do not have a talent for that. It makes your <laughs> eyes cross, doesn't it? I love I love anytime I can get a friend on on a set of bellows for the first time ever I love to watch and it's because I went through the same I, I like playing bellows pipes but I I went through the same thing right where like it was like I forgot to blink because I was you know paying so much attention to <laughs> to going back and forth. It, in fact, it was really satisfying to me when I saw this uh, this guy Liam who was on the show a little while ago who's an Illin piper. He got on some some Irish war pipes for the first time in his life. He'd never played mouth blown pipes ever before. And oh as boy. he's trying to blow them up, 
his right elbow is pumping just regular, just as if he had bellows underneath it. So it's just funny to see the opposite thing happening to a piper, (laughs) you know? Somehow satisfying, too, to be like, ha ha, you guys get it, too, you know? (laughs) You're right, yeah. No, I've uh, just... Yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't have, I don't have the talent for it. I mean, I've tried it a couple times and there was a guy uh, out here that has a set of bellows pipes. He, uh, one time he said, Hey, you want to try these out? I'm like, Nope. nope. <laughs> Been there, don't, done that. <laughs> don't want to embarrass myself. I want yeah. everybody to think, I want everybody to think I'm still a good piper. So yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so what about listening? Um, recreationally, are there any specific, uh, individual pipers or pipe bands or Kaylee groups or Celtic music that you especially like listening to? Uh, you know, for bands, I'm really digging the up-and-coming grade one bands. So mm. Scottish Power, um, uh, oh, their name just slipped me. I was just thinking about them a few minutes ago. Um, the up-and-comers, the ones who are displacing the old guard, which, yeah. you know, I don't mean that in a mean way. Sure, but, nothing against know. Field Marshal, of course. Sim- no, no, Simon no, Fraser will Marsh- always be great, of course. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it's good to see some of these newer bands, newer ideas coming forward. Yeah. Um, taking pipe band music in a different direction, which I think needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of got stale for uh, way too many years, I thought. Because if you, I remember as a kid, I would pick up all these tapes of different pipe bands through the different eras. Yeah, You could hear the progression from the 60s into the 70s into the 80s. Mm-hmm. But then we hit like the late 90s and, and through most of the 2000s, like nothing mm. really changed, you know what I mean? That, that's interesting, Scott, because that's precisely when I came into piping. And so for me, I wonder if that's some degree of the angst that I have been experiencing the last few years of feeling like things are stale. Maybe mm. I came in right when things were exactly as they have been ever since I came into it, you know? And so maybe right. I just haven't been able to be witness to any shifts and changes that would have got me excited, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it just seems like... Um, uh, you know, everybody's got their own opinion, of course. But uh, yeah, I just thought for a long time, uh, you'd listen to world CDs, and it was just like, man, uh, this band has not changed from last year. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, the tunes are different, but it's still kind of the same medley construction. Um, There's uh, that tricky thing, though, right? Where, like, if something is winning, then everybody wants to do that thing, and it can right. get scary to change. Yeah. But then again, remember, it was uh, this band from Canada. Um, called 78 Frasers who went over to the Worlds one year and did something different and they won. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything. That's yeah. when everything changed, right? Yeah. But the progression, you know, like I said, from the late 90s into the 2000s, nothing really changed. And then all of a sudden, you have these up-and-coming bands, uh, you know, Chris Armstrong. And the old guard didn't like Chris Armstrong. Oh, yeah, he's just, you know, just a young kid. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not saying that now, are they? <laughs> right, right, no. yeah. <clears throat> you know. So that's where I'm kind of excited, and I'm excited for the future now. Uh, yeah. Like I said, there were things that were just stale for a long The only thing that really changed was the pitch. The pitch kept on climbing. I wanted to ask and, you about that, actually, if you uh, have an opinion. And the pans <laughs> the pans kept getting bigger. That's, but, it, that's no. the other thing I was going to ask you, too, Scott. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you feel like, first I was going to say, do you feel like there's any th- such thing as too big? You know, do grade one bands, can they ever get too big? And then I was going to ask you, do you think we should standardize pitch and pull it back down and say it's got to be within this range or something, something well, to I, keep it down? Well, we said that um, in the late 90s. We're like, wow, this pitch is really climbing. It'll come back any day now, right? <laughs> still waiting. Still, still waiting still for waiting. it to come back. Um, for grade one bands, no. If you can get 24 pipers on the same page and sound that good and that close together. All the better, huh? Go, go for it. Now, here's my problem. There's the, there's the opposite side of the coin to that. A lot of grade four bands will watch world videos mm-hmm. and I think, wow, if we're going to win a contest, we need a big band. Mm. No, no, you don't. <laughs> okay. That might actually reduce your chances. Exactly. And I think that, that some of the bands that I've tried to help out through the years, that's what they, they try to stack the bands with people and you know, trying to play the numbers game, right? Yeah, yeah. A uh, bigger sound will impress the judges. Well, mm. If you're putting pipers in there and drummers who aren't ready, um, that's going to detract from your sound. You don't hide bad pipers. You can't do it, right? But we always, we always talk about that, don't we? we? We always do that thing where it's like, well, I'll put so-and-so between so-and-so and so-and-so, and that, that way it'll hide somehow. No. Um, judges usually will hone in on that piper. You know that's right where the judge is going to stop as they're walking around the circle, right? right? <laughs> they're going right they're behind gonna, yeah. that person. Um, so, I know we're a very top-down 
hobby that we have, right? Whatever the grade one bands do, it just kind of trickles down the rest of yeah. us falls yeah. soon, right? Um, but I think that's a danger for a lot of grade four bands and even grade three bands. I think, well, you know, the only way we're going to win a contest is if we have a big band and then we'll let some standards slide and we'll put some people in there that maybe aren't ready, but you know, we can maybe hide them between um, some better players. Uh, mm -hmm. No, it doesn't work. I mean, if you got six good pipers and four good drummers, that's what you go out with. Mm -hmm. If you say, well, we could go out with 12. Well, uh, I wouldn't do it. You know, that was always been my, I try to counsel bands that so don't do it. Mm -hmm. Go out there, put your best players out there and let the judges hear that, make it a, make a basis of their decision off that, mm. you know, um, also I, playing music that you can actually handle. Oh, yeah, uh, that's that something. was another thing I, I try to counsel bands because whatever band won the world's last year, whatever hornpipe they played in their medley, 20 bands, Next year, be playing it next 20 year. grade four bands are going to be playing the same <laughs> yeah. horn pipe and yeah. not playing it well. And <laughs> yeah. I would tell them, it's like, that's not your strength. You guys don't play that horn pipe well. Bands don't like hearing that, but I try to tell them, it's like, that's the first piece of music that judge is going to hear. Yeah. Yeah, just play a good march. Yeah. Play a good march, you know. Go out there with your best players and play music that you can handle. That's, yeah, that's, there's, there's something to be said for a simple thing done well being better than a complex thing being screwed right. up. <laughs> But again, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, pipe band uniform. I mean, that's the same thing. Somebody will see one of the grade one bands on the uh, on the uh, video or on the live feed, be like, and then all of a sudden you see that band the next season. They're wearing the same outfit. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, okay, yeah. You know, come up with your own stuff, guys. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, the the trends, and that's an expensive trend when you have to buy all new, little not just kilts. Man, the the hose and the and the yeah. special Glengarrys and everything. That's expensive stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, color coordination is kind of getting on my nerves, but uh, yeah. You know. But then again, I'm also mostly colorblind, so I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't see colors the same way everybody else sees. Or, or that's what my wife tells me anyway. I, so. I'm pretty thoroughly colorblind myself, so I can, I can relate there with you. Uh, for, for a while, we talked when we started the band that I play with here, we talked about just letting everybody wear whatever kilt they wanted. There's, right. a, there's a part of me that still thinks that still could have been fun. Still could have been a yeah, fun thing to do. I, well, I mean, why not? I mean, when we started Queen City um, in Colorado years ago, uh, that's what we did. We just yeah. wore what we had. Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. You yeah. know? And uh, you go to a contest and think, oh, we're going to, judges aren't going to take her seriously because we're all kind of dressed all mismatched. Uh, that's not the case. You know? mm -hmm. yeah, wear what you got. And yeah, you know, sometimes it is kind of cool to see a collection of pipers and everybody's got their own, their own gear on. You know? Yeah, can be fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. The, the Wasatch is a strong example of where like, I have been very impressed by uniformity. You know, they, yeah. all, all that, their tartan works well with it and it, it um, it can be very impressive to see a, a big block of, of uniformity too. So. Yeah, oh, true, and I and I agree with that. But at yeah. the same time, you do what you can. Yeah, and, for sure. and you, the music should come first, and that's what I that's another thing I try to tell bands. You know, so yeah, focus certainly on don't your, not play just because you don't have the right uniform, right? Or play, you know, no be, if you have to make a trade off between do we bring an instructor and help us out, or do we buy new sporns? Mm. You know, Get bring the in the instructor. Yeah. Get the instructor. You know? Yeah. You know, screw the uniform, you know, <laughs> unless you're, you know, unless you're dead set on getting that dress and department award, you know. Pff, yeah, yeah. You, now, know, you only have to wear a kilt. That's the only thing that's required. You, you only wear a kilt. Right. Yeah. The, the, um, you, where you've spent time doing, uh, you know, repairs and such on drums. Have you ever picked up sticks or mallets yourself? Your tri snare drum or? I tried, and I uh, when I was in high school, I did a couple semesters in the high school band uh, mm. in wind ensemble. And I, uh, and that was after I'd been in the pipe band world for a while, and I uh, picked up some drumming skills. And so I thought, yeah, this would be cool. You know, I could take some music classes in high school. And uh, But the problem was is that uh, all the other drummers that were in this class all claimed that they were tone deaf. So they got all the snare parts and the ah. battery, battery percussion. And I got stuck on mallets and timpani. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I got a pretty good timpani skills. But uh, other than that, uh, you know, and I've tried to occasionally pick up a pair of sticks and play. But I just, I don't have the time. You know, I don't I've, really have the time to put into it. So. I feel like I've seen a few times pipe bands that will add a one of those quads to their drum layup to, or right. drum layout. And I, I feel like that's pretty cool, but I don't feel like I see it very much. So I wonder if it's maybe hard to do or just isn't isn't typical enough to really have caught on, you know? I think it's both of them yeah. um, because uh, playing quad 
and even quince uh, it's very it's got its own style it really yeah, does yeah. i mean you're not it's not a snare style um it's got it's got its own unique style of playing and if it's done well it's pretty cool mm -hmm. but if you do get somebody who's just kind of just beating along to the rhythm eh, yeah okay you can, you can keep it you know yeah <laughs> but uh we did see years ago years ago um up in enum claw the enum claw contest mm -hmm. And one of the drum corps during their drum solo contest did have a, a quad player. Gotcha, yeah. An actual quad player. And he put on a pretty good show. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I thought it did really add a lot to their to their performance. That's a great idea to slip it into the drum salute. That, I yeah. can see how that could yeah. add a lot without getting mushy with the melody coming from the pipes. Right. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Um, and I, uh, pipe band drumming since I've started has come such a long way and I hope it continues. Yeah. Um, the multiple pitch tenor drums, you know, that was when I started, that was an absolute no, no, that never happened. Interesting. Um, it was all uniform. Back, back when I was, back when I started, tenor drummers didn't actually hit the drum. They actually, a lot oh, of tenor drummers. Show, huh? Yeah. It was just all flourishing. A lot of tenor drummers would actually put a pillow inside their drum just in case they hit the drum by accident. <laughs> in case they hit it by accident. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't make any sound. But yeah, tenor drummers were just all flourishing. They didn't huh. really. And then one day, all of a sudden, they had the multiple pitch tenor drums. I was like, what? Mm -hmm. who, who allowed this to happen? And I was skeptical at first, but it's taken off. And it's actually, I think it adds a lot to the to the pipe band performance. Yeah, super cool. Um, so you got a you got a good visual going on, and you've got a good drum core sound going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's really added, and I hope that continues. And maybe not, maybe multiple pitch bass drums as well. Hey, know. that'd be I, fun. Uh, yeah, I, who knows? But I, I, the staunch traditionalists are going away, which, uh, and one one side of me is sad to see. But then again, if we're going to continue with this, if this is going to reach out to a new generation of kids and get them involved and keep them interested, we're going to have to involve. Mm. Piping is very slow to evolve, right? Yeah, and that's just the nature of it. But pipe band drumming—if you—if you want to keep drummers, and you want to have a good band, you need good drummers. And you're not going to keep drummers if you're going to do the same old thing over and over again. Um, and uh, I've always more, told more interesting and exciting things right. to do. Yeah. One of the best drummers I worked with in Colorado. Um, this is back when we had the Colorado Sky Band. Uh, he got fed up with the pipe band world. He just said it was pretty redundant, pretty boring, and he left the pipe band world to go play with an 80s cover band because that was more exciting. Yeah. That actually made me pretty sad yeah. <laughs> that a guy would leave the pipe band world because he was bored because it just wasn't much change Yeah, uh, to go play you know, 80s cover band in some you know crappy little bar on the weekends. Mm -hmm. yeah. That we lost a good drummer. The community lost a good drummer because there just wasn't enough change. There just mm. wasn't enough to keep them interested. Yeah. So I think on the drumming side, you, we need to we need to be more accepting of of change and adaptations. Because mm. um, I mean, uh, I've told bands this, a lot of the bands I work with, this mentality is still out there that a lot of pipers will blame drummers if something goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to tell people like. Drummers play with this thing called a metronome, so they're mostly never wrong. If there's ever a problem in a band, it's usually the pipers. But uh, if you don't have a good drum corps, you don't have a good band. That's it. Yeah. That's it, you know. And if you want to keep your drummers and you want to keep your band viable, you better keep your drummers happy. And people don't like hearing that, but that's the truth of it. Well, I, I can tell you, I've certainly had the personal experience that um, we want to keep them happy because we lose them too easily um, in that, like, just like it it becomes a problem for competition numbers if you have to have so many right. snares and you don't you simply don't right. even have that many humans playing snares mm -hmm. so. or yeah so I, I would tell bands uh, this happens in the lower grade bands unfortunately is uh they always make all oh, these drummers just in the background making noise and, hmm. okay you Tip keep you saying things like <laughs> you keep saying the things like that they're going to leave all right mm -hmm. and then you're going to be high and dry so uh, change your attitude <laughs> we got we to gotta be nice to our drummers here you better love your drummers you yeah. better show them some respect because really they're the your bass drummer is the one keeping it all together let's face it the pipe major can stomp his foot all, his want, all he wants to mm. that bass drummer is the thing that's tying the whole band together mm. if you lose your bass drummer that's it yeah so anyway well well scott do you have um uh maybe, maybe we go out on some tunes i'm curious if you have any tunes that uh stand out in your mind as like some real favorites that you just can go back to every day your entire life and you'll never get tired of them 
And also, if you have any tunes that you want to never play again because you played too many. And also, if there's any at the top of your list that you still haven't picked up but you want to someday. Uh, see, so the least favorite tunes would be probably that standard Irish set that we've always played for you know the last 50 years. Uh, not because I have a problem with Irish music. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good Irish music out there, but uh, the, the Roddy McCorley, Minstrel Boy, Wearing of the Green, mm-hmm. those are really bad versions of those they're songs. They're actually songs. They're not tunes. They're songs. Yeah. But if you listen to an Irish Cayley band play those songs... It's, it's a different feel. It's got a different rhythm. Yeah. It's got a different tempo for sure. Yeah. Um, they just don't work well as marches, and I don't think it's a good represent, representation of Irish music. Well, and our flat seventh sometimes really gets in the way in a weird yeah. way on those melody lines too. Exactly, and it just does not do those those songs. I'm going to call those songs because mm-hmm. they are songs. It doesn't do those songs justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, same with uh, things like you know Danny Boy and Irishizers. Are smiling. Yeah. Uh, those are those are songs that are outside of our range, so we don't really do them justice. Mm-hmm. So those are the things I would like to see go away, right? Yeah. Now that's not to say that there are some good Irish. There are a lot of good. There's a lot of good Irish music out there that we can, as Highland Pipers, play. Yeah. And we should be focusing on that and mm-hmm. what we can do instead of trying to fudge our way through Danny Boy. Yeah. Um, just. <laughs> Um, and you know, uh, Roddy McCorley, Mr. Boy, what's the other ones? Um, yeah, the wearing uh, of the green. You mentioned that. Well, wearing of the green, rakes of mallow. Jesus, I mean, I, just, I wish people uh, rakes of mallow just needs to go away. You're not it's, the only uh, one who's tired of rakes of mallow. Uh, but you know, but we keep saying this, right? Everybody's tired of playing it. But you know, what do we do every St. Patrick's Day? Well, oh, hey, rakes of mallow, let's go! <laughs> oh, yay, here we go. Um, so, uh, again, it's not not that I hate. Irish music. I love Irish music, but I think what we play is just not a good representation of Irish music. Yeah, it's not. So those, those tunes aren't fitting well on the Highland Pipes. No, not at all. Not yeah. at all. Um, Star of the County Down. That's another one I've heard bands play. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, when the Chieftains do it, it's awesome. When a pipe band plays it, it's just absolute garbage. <laughs> let's, uh, let's not do my, that. My band played that in parades for like three years, and we had fun with it. <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, some of my favorites, uh, uh, Honey in the Bag was one of my favorite jigs. I played that for Highland Dancers for the, for the jig for a lot of years. Man, I'm not familiar with that one. I'm, I'm going to pull that up yeah. here. Yeah. Check it out later. Um, Glengarry Gathering, that's always mm. been a favorite march of mine, probably because it was the first 2-4 march that I was really thoroughly instructed on. That was one Gordon Spears set me up on um, just to get me prepped for you know, solo competition. Mm. But I've always thought that had... A lot of the basics are covered in that tune mm. that translate into other tunes like Highland Wedding, you know. Mm. Highland Wedding seems to be like, like a bigger version of Glengarry Gathering. It's got those key changes. It's got that really heavy bottom hand work. It's got the heavy top hand work, mm. right? So Glengarry Gathering has always been one of my favorites just because I think it's that's a good foundational tune if you're going to be a good soloist. That's not a good band tune. But if you're gonna be, if you're gonna really approach solos, I think that's a good tune to get on quickly. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Uh, I'm one of those pipers that I don't memorize tune names; I just memorize notes. Oh, I hear you, man. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You'll hear a tune name, you go, "I think I know that," but play it for me for a while. First. Yeah, hum, <laughs> hum a couple bars. Yeah, and, oh exactly. yeah, sure, I know that. Pick it right up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of smaller marches that I like. Um, Andrew Warnock. You know. Oh yeah. One of my yeah. It's one, of my, it's one of my favorite tunes to warm up to. You know, it's four parts of four four. It's not difficult. Goes through every note, um, but it's uh, it's that's just a great tune. Yeah. Um, Cabaret used to be one of my favorites, but I've played that so many times now. I'm kind of over it. You played it too many times, though. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, same thing with uh, like Out of the Air and Kelsey's We Real. I play mm. Kelsey's We Real in pretty much every band I've ever been in. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'm over that. Maybe I'm really, really that over. One, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, let's see what else. What else? Um, Lord Alexander Kennedy is one of the tunes I've really wanted to tackle. And uh, when Seamus Coyne got his band together, yeah, um, I remember I almost jumped on board with that. But he sent me the music, and Lak was in there, and I thought, all right, cool. This is my chance to get this one down. Um, and, John Morrison of Ashen House, of course, was in there. That was another that that 
reel plagued me my early years. I just could not get that reel down. And it wasn't until I finally joined Wasatch where mm. I finally was able to nail it. Mm. But um, I probably can't nail it now. Mm. <laughs> right? So probably something I need to brush back up on. But, uh, um, and then uh, Cameroonian Rant, for some reason, I don't know why. But uh, No, yeah, I, I played that one in high school. That's a, that's a great tune, yeah. It's a great tune, um, but I think that's a good, it's a good tune. I like the, the more minor sound it has to it. Yeah, totally. But I think it's a great memorization tune. Because mm. if you can memorize that body of work, then, you know, you could pretty much memorize anything. Um, so that's another one at some point I'm going to tackle when I have, you know, a, a free moment mm -hmm. or moments. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, that's a good, that's a great list right there. Um, yeah. Well, but, uh, Scott, I, 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 I don't want to put you under any kind of pressure. <laughs> okay. But I usually kind of fade these episodes out with the guests saying something. Right. So, you know, you, the audience is all pipers and drummers. Um, right. What 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 might you say to bring us to a graceful close, whether it's uh, heavy and serious or uh, just reciting a ridiculous limerick that you picked up somewhere along the way? <laughs> uh, heavy and serious. I guess I'll go on my uh, pipe, being in a pipe band, being a piper in a pipe band. Yeah. Spiel. Uh, this would be a serious, more of a serious thing. Um, uh, a lot of people would say that you know piping is piping, right? Doesn't matter. Be a soloist, you be a band piper. Piping is piping. Well, I would say that uh, running is running, right? Mm. But there's not. There's people who run marathons. There's people who run sprints, right? There's people who run on the treadmill a couple days a week, try to get back in shape. So running is not just running. A person who's training for a marathon is going to train differently than a person who sprints, right? So band piping and solo piping. Completely different things. Yeah, they're mm. related. Yeah, yeah, okay, they involve a bagpipe and you're playing music. But the soloist gets to do whatever they want. A soloist can pick out their own music, for the most part, until you get to the higher grades, that changes, of course. Mm -hmm. But as a soloist, you can pick your own music. You can play whatever chant or read you want. On the day of a contest, you can either play up-tempo, or you're dragging some ass, maybe you can play down-tempo. Uh, you want to set yourself up a little higher, a little flatter, doesn't matter. As a soloist, you're free to do whatever you want. As a bandpiper, you don't have those options. You follow me? Totally. As a bandpiper, you're going to play tunes that you don't want to play. You're going to play tunes at tempos that you're not comfortable with. You're going to have to play tunes and express and phrase them in ways that are kind of counterintuitive to the way you want to do it. Mm. You're going to have to play channels of reeds you might not like. You're going to have to play at a pitch that you don't like. You got, none of that matters if you're going to be a bandpiper you got to show up you got to have that music memorized you got to play it the way everyone else is playing it you got to show up and give it your 100% effort every time that's the only way you're ever going to know if a tune is working for a band this is something I've also tried to when I counsel um, bands I've tried to help out if you just show up and go through the motions and you're just going to play the tune however you want you're not going to maintain good tone you're never going to know how good that could have been. Mm. You know? And you've got to put the things that you don't like aside if you're going to be a bandpiper. And that's why I think being a bandpiper is infinitely more harder than being a soloist. Because you're going to do things that you don't like. And the only way that your band's going to succeed or work is if you can put those things out of your head, do what everybody else is doing. Get on the same page and give it your very best effort. It doesn't matter if it's at a rehearsal, if it's at a performance, and definitely if it's at a contest. Mm -hmm. You've got to give it 100% every time. And the things you don't like, you've got to put those outside of your head. You know? And people will find that hard to swallow. They're like, well, if I don't like it, why am I here? Why do I do this? And I would say, well, again, exactly. If you really mm. don't like the music, if you really don't like the direction the band's going, then why are you here? But yeah. as a band, you got to come together. As a band player, you got to put things aside, and you just you got to do you got to do what you're supposed to do. You got to do what everybody else is doing. You got to sound like everybody else. Yeah, right. You, see, you can't be an individual. You become a part of a bigger thing. Right. And I've had people fight me on that. It's like, why do I have to get a new bag? I like this bag. Well, that's not the bag everybody else is playing. When temperature changes happen on a field, and they happen, you know, that happens in the afternoons. Rain clouds roll in, temperature yeah. goes down. 
Yeah, you're the odd man out with the, you're playing a different bag. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, drone reads, strength of channel reads even. I tell people, mm -hmm. you're going to play in a band, you might have to play a read that you're not comfortable with. It might be a little too hard. You all have to play the same strength of read because when those temperature changes happen, your easier reads will change faster than your harder reads. Yeah. And if you don't want to get cut out of the contest, like I said, you've got to sound like everybody else. And if your tone falls off two minutes before you're supposed to go on, that's it. Mm. You're done. You're, you're getting sat out. doesn't matter how much effort and practice time you put into it and how much money you pay for the hotel to stay for the night. That's it. Mm. If you're not doing what everybody else is doing, then you don't get to play. Um, and that's really that's, uh, that's what it comes down to. That's why I say being a bandpiper is not easy. People think make, being a bandpiper makes you lazy. Like it's no. easier than soloing. Right. No. If you if that's your mentality or if that's your takeaway from it, you know, something's going wrong. Then you're probably yeah. not a very good bandpiper. Huh? Well, yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, uh, you, uh, working on a team in any capacity, even in the workforce, yeah. you're going to work with people you don't like. You're going to do work you don't want to do. It doesn't matter. You got to show up and you got to give it your best effort. That's the only way you know it's going to work. That's the only way you're going to be successful.